Well, it's a real privilege, uh, privilege to be with you guys this morning. Um, actually, I do have a couple of connections to this church. Um, I actually went to college with uh, Leanne Boyd, who's somewhere. Um, and I, one of my best friends from, from since I was like 14 years old is Eric Fuqua, who was a, a member here, Eric and Jessica. And I'm sure like you, we still wish they lived in Tennessee. Uh, they moved to Albuquerque uh, last year, I guess. But and actually, four or five years ago, I actually visited this church a couple times as we were just visiting with the Fuquas. And, you know, confession is good for the soul, so I want to confess that uh, Pastor, Pastor Richard actually shared a, a Saving Private Ryan illustration, which I have shamelessly stolen several times since uh, I heard it here. So thank you very much for that. I appreciate that. Uh, so it's very, very good to be with you guys this morning. If you open your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 9, we'll be looking at a story from the Gospel, a story that I love very much, this encounter with Jesus. <clears throat> now, Jesus, in the passage, at the earlier, earlier part of chapter 9, Jesus and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, are coming down from the mountainside. They're on the mountain. They've seen the transfiguration. They've seen Jesus in his full glory. And, um, and it's this, just this amazing scene. And as they're coming down from the mountain, this, is, this passage that we're going to look at this morning is, a, is what immediately happens. Okay? There's this kind of this mess that's unfolding where this father has a son with an unclean spirit. He's brought his son to Jesus, the rest of Jesus' disciples, and a, kind of a, 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 the scene unfolds, and it's where we will pick up this morning. So Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. This is God's word. And when they, that is Jesus and his three disciples, came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out, and they said, and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him and ask him for his help. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, it is, it is during this, the darkest time of the year, when, when the sunlight is at its smallest amount, that we celebrate the light of the world coming to us. We celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is Jesus that we need to see this morning. It is Jesus that we wish to see in this passage, Lord we pray that you would illuminate this text. We pray that you would illuminate our hearts. We pray that you would show us Jesus today and that we'd be changed by what we see. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. So one of the ways that my family marks holidays is by watching the old Charlie Brown peanut holiday specials, okay? So we've just, we've just been watching a lot of the... Um, I, by the way, I never introduced my family. Shalane is my wife. I have three children. Addie Pearl, who's four. Miles, who's two. And then we have a baby Stella, who's one month old today. So if I look a bit zombified at some point, if I say something strange, if I have a weird look on my face, it's because I'm a sleep-deprived father uh, of three. Uh, but, but my family, my children, we love to watch the Charlie Brown specials. And uh, so we've been watching the Christmas Charlie Brown special. That's the best one, of course. But, um, you know, we're not huge Halloween people, but we do love the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown special, okay? So we watched that one a lot in October. Um, and if you haven't seen that recently, um, let me remind you of kind of the plot of that, okay? So Linus, Charlie Brown's best friend, he believes in this imaginary figure called the Great Pumpkin. And he believes that if you sit in a pumpkin patch with, with great sincerity, that the Great Pumpkin will come to you and give you gifts and presents and all these great things. You have to stay there on Halloween night in the pumpkin patch, and the great pumpkin will come to visit you. And so the other kids kind of tease Linus. They don't really get this. Uh, and so Linus, on Halloween night, he's there. All the kids kind of come by. They're kind of making fun of him, like, man, you've missed trick-or-treating. You've missed the Halloween party. You've missed everything. Just sit in this pumpkin patch. And they start, as they start to leave, Linus calls after them. He says, if the great pumpkin comes, you'll be sorry. And he realizes He's made a grave error. He said, if, not when. And he realizes that he's doomed, that the great pumpkin is never going to come because he's not been sincere enough. Right? He's doubted. He has wavered in his sincerity. He has wavered in his faith. And the great pumpkin is not going to come to visit him that night. And it's kind of a funny story, and I love to watch that. But I feel like, I think there's a lot of parallel to that in how we sometimes approach Jesus, and how we sometimes approach God. And we feel like we have to have this perfect faith to follow Jesus, that we feel like if we have less than perfect faith, if we have any doubts at all that God's going to be disappointed with us, that he may not hear us when we pray, that he won't bless us, he won't care for us. And so this, what we've come to do is we've come to sort of redefine faith to mean something like perfect psychological certainty. Okay, perfect certainty. That's sometimes how we think about faith. But that's not how the Bible talks about faith. That's not, that's not what faith is. And so this faulty idea of faith can actually really affect us in some serious ways. Um, if you're a Christian, you're going to struggle with doubts at some point. That's just part of, that kind of comes with the territory. And so if you're a Christian struggling with doubt and you realize, like, I don't have this perfect certainty, you'll be very tempted to beat yourself up. You'll be very tempted to get discouraged, to feel like you're a bad Christian, uh, to feel that you're all alone dealing with these doubts and struggling with this, that no one else... You know, you look at all your other Christian friends, they don't seem to have any doubts. Uh, and it just makes you feel alone, makes you feel frustrated and discouraged. Or, or maybe that's not you this morning. Maybe you're thinking about following Jesus, but you haven't uh, done that yet. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You're interested in, in Christianity and, and thinking about following Jesus, but you don't have this perfect certainty yet. And you're kind of waiting for this perfect certainty to come around so that you can start to call yourself a Christian. So you can start to, to really follow Jesus but that perfect certainty is not coming. You feel discouraged and frustrated by that. No matter where you are this morning, doubt is somewhere on all of our radar. Okay? And so in Mark 9 this morning, we see how Jesus deals with doubters. We see how Jesus responds to our doubts. And so we have two points this morning, diagnosing our doubts and dealing with our doubts. First, diagnosing our doubt. 
It's cold and flu season, okay? I hope that you are all well. I hope that you're healthy. Maybe you've already struggled with something. Maybe uh, you're, you, you know, you've, you've been to the doctor. But you know, when you usually when you get sick, you go to the doctor. You tell the doctor your symptoms. And the doctor doesn't just usually treat the symptoms. The doctor is looking for the underlying cause. Okay, what's causing that symptom? What's, what's underneath that that's causing that? And that's what we need to do with our doubts. Okay, if we, if we find doubts in ourselves, we, we have to look underneath those doubts. Where, where, where the, where's that coming from? Where are these doubts coming from? What's going on in our hearts to cause these doubts? And the simple answer is, is basically just that, that we're sinners. That we have sinful, wayward hearts that lead us astray into doubts. I love, uh, come thou fount of every blessing, that line, um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, right? That's how, we, that's how it feels sometimes. So the simple answer is just, you know, we have sinful hearts, and they're going to lead us astray at times. But of course, we want to go a little deeper than that, okay? Uh, Pastor Tim Keller, in his book, A Reason for God, talks about doubt. Um, and he says that, that doubts, our doubts are always fueled by another belief, okay? There's a belief that we hold that, will, that fuels our doubts, okay? There's always a doubt that is connected to another belief that you, you already hold. So if I came to you this morning and said, and told you that before I became a pastor, I was a lineman in the NFL, uh, you would probably instantly doubt that claim, okay? The reason you would doubt that is because you have a belief in your mind. You have a belief of what an NFL lineman looks like, and it does not look like this, okay? And so you have a belief that would be informing this doubt, that would be sort of fueling this doubt. And so we see a, a pretty clear picture of doubt uh, and that, excuse me, that's how we begin by diagnosing our, our own doubts, that we're, we're, we're looking at what are the beliefs that are underneath my doubts? What are the beliefs that I'm, I'm holding that are fueling my doubts? We see a pretty clear picture of doubt in Mark chapter 9 here with this father, the father of the boy with an unclean spirit. And so first we need to recognize this father, he has some level of faith, right? He is seeking out Jesus to bring his son. He believes Jesus can help his son, okay? He's seeking Jesus out to, to, to come and, and bring his son to him. Um, and as he's, he's bringing Jesus, you know, uh, it was, it's when he comes face to face with Jesus that that's when we see his doubts exposed. And so we look at their, um, look at their exchange again, beginning in verse 21. Uh, and Jesus asked him, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And so, so what is this man actually doubting? He, he's, he's doubting whether or not Jesus can help his son. He's doubting whether Jesus has the ability to help him. Is Jesus going to be able to help him? Is Jesus going to be able to, to take care of, of his son? But what's underneath that doubt? Okay, What are the beliefs that are underneath that doubt? Well, we don't know this father's heart, but we do have some clues from the passage. Okay, Perhaps this father, perhaps his doubt is being fueled by the fact that the disciples have just failed to cast out this unclean spirit, okay? If you remember the beginning of the passage, um, he's seeking Jesus, but Jesus and the, three, the closest three disciples are up on the mountain of transfiguration, right? He sees the rest of the disciples. He goes to them. He brings his son. These disciples are not able to cast out the spirit. Uh, the, the scribes and, and teachers gather. They begin to criticize the disciples. It turns into this whole scene. But um, this father finds that the rest of the disciples are not able to do it. Um, it, since they failed, since his, Jesus' followers couldn't do it, um, perhaps Jesus can't do it either. Maybe that's kind of what's fueling his doubt, that Jesus' disciples couldn't, couldn't help him. Another likely cause of the Father's doubts, I think, is just consider the suffering 
that this father has endured uh, caring for this child, caring for his son. Watch, imagine what that, would, what that would be like, okay? That he says his, the spirit, he's had it since childhood, it's constantly trying to kill him, throwing him, trying to throw him into fire to burn him, trying to throw him into water to drown him. Just imagine like, what that would be like day in and day out. You know, my son, Miles, I mentioned he's two years old. Um, he has asthma. And uh, he, you know, a couple weeks ago, or actually a couple, couple months ago now, um, he was, sometimes if he catches a chest cold or something, it can really exacerbate his asthma and it gets out of hand really quickly. So we have like the nebulizer machine at home, the breathing treatments and stuff like that. And, but one day, it got out of hand very quickly and our breathing treatments at home weren't able to help him, so we ended up in the ER. It's been about 24 hours in the hospital. He was admitted. And it was scary, right? You don't want to see your two-year-old son in a hospital bed. There's something very unsettling about that. But it was, it was like 24 hours, and he was better, and he was released. Okay, He's doing great now. Um, and so, but, but that, was tw- that was one day, 24 hours. It was stressful for me and my wife. It was frustrating. It was scary and frightening. But that was nothing compared to what this father dealt with day in and day out. And can you imagine never being able to sort of take your eyes off your child for fear of what might happen when your back was turned, for fe- you know, being, having to sleep sort of with one eye open for fear of what might happen to your child. And I'm sure the father had sought help from other people too, from, from anyone and everyone. And all along the way, um, you know, people are, are, are unable to help, unable to cast out this unclean spirit. So he comes to Jesus and he's spent. He's emotionally exhausted. He's weary. He's starting to believe that no one can help him, that there will never be an end to it. He suffered so long with this burden that now, even though he's, as he's face-to-face with the Lord Jesus, he's doubting that even Jesus can help him. Now, maybe you can relate to that. Uh, perhaps you have suffered greatly in your life. Perhaps there, you're carrying scars uh, from past wounds that, that are just a constant reminder and constantly fueling doubts in your, in your heart. Maybe you doubt God's goodness. Maybe you doubt God's provision for you and your family because of things that have happened to you in the past, suffering that you've endured. Maybe because of that, you, it's, it's, tr- it's hard for you to remember what is the most common promise in the Bible when God says I, to his people, I will never leave you or forsake you. It's the most common promise because it's the one that we are so tempted to forget, the one we are so tempted uh, to, to doubt. Or maybe you've, been, maybe you've been abandoned by someone who is supposed to love you and care for you. And that, that pain makes you feel unlovable makes you feel unacceptable, that when you come to Jesus, that you feel like there's no way that Jesus, there's no way Jesus could accept me uh, because of this, this wound you're carrying. Or maybe you've experienced such great loss, such tragedy in your life that, that it's made you bitter, that you, that you go through life just expecting what's the next bad thing that's going to come. And you're filled with doubts about God, about His goodness, about His care for you. Or maybe you're like this father. Maybe you've, you, you've, you've sought, you have troubles, you have problems, you've sought help from many different sources, and you've never found relief. You've never found uh, any help. And so you're starting to wonder, just, just as, just as uh, this father, starting to wonder, can Jesus, can Jesus really help me if, if, if all these other things have failed? Suffering can have a, a, a tremendous impact on faith, on our faith and our doubts. So my question for us this morning is this. In, in what areas of life are you struggling to trust God? What are, what are the things in your life you're struggling to trust Jesus with? What are, the, what are the areas of life where you feel the most doubt? 
Maybe, maybe you're struggling to trust Jesus with your children. Maybe you're struggling to trust Jesus with your finances or your future. But in wrestling with our doubts, we have to diagnose them. We have to ask ourselves, okay, what's underneath my doubt? What's underneath that? What is it that's fueling my doubt? Maybe you have trouble trusting Jesus with your children. And this could be, you know, we, parents of young children like me, we worry about our children, that they're healthy and they're going to be well-rounded. Um, if you have adult children, there's a lot more to worry about, right, um, about, uh, for your adult children. Um, and many of you probably perhaps worry about your children and, um, you know, their relationship with the Lord. But maybe you, maybe you worry about your children, um, you have trouble trusting the, the Lord with your children because you genuinely believe that you love your children more than Jesus does. Or maybe you have trouble trusting God with your finances because you believe that God is not really going to meet all your needs. Or maybe you have trouble trusting God with your future because you, you believe He's not actually in control. Right? You would say that, oh yeah, he's in control, but, but when it comes with that deep down in your heart, you don't really believe that. And that's fueling these doubts about God's provision for you, about God's work in your life. So in order to diagnose our doubts, we, we have to identify what are those beliefs, what are those other beliefs that I have that are fueling my doubts? What are, what are the beliefs underneath my doubts? And once we've done that, once we've identified those and, and started to work through those, how do we deal with our doubts? What do we do, what do, we do then? And that leads us to our second point, dealing with our doubt. Uh, now, it's no surprise, actually, that my son has asthma, because when I was a kid, I had asthma, too. Okay, um, Runs in the family, I guess. Uh, I didn't have it as bad as him. I, you know, I, I had a little inhaler, but I never had sort of a breathing machine. I never was hospitalized for, for asthma or anything like that. But my, my, my doctor found out my, my asthma was related to allergies. Okay, So when I was 15, I was sent to an allergist. Um, and I, they did some testing, some allergy, an allergy test on me. If you've ever had the allergy test, it's a horrible experience. I hope that you haven't had that. Uh, and, and, you know, I started taking allergy shots for like a year and a half. I took allergy shots, and it, it helped me. It took care of my, it made my allergies better. My asthma went away when I was about 16. It was really nice. Um, and so but what they do in allergy shots is really kind of interesting. They, if, you, if you know, they take a little bit of an allergen, okay? They take things that you're allergic to. And they inject them into your body. They, they inject increasing amounts of things that you're allergic to. Just a small amount at first, and they kind of build progressively. And the human body is so amazing that what happens is your body learns to deal with that. Your body learns, your, you know, your body builds up immunity to these things that you're allergic to. Uh, and so it made my immune system stronger. It, it helped me to not be allergic to these things or not have the allergic reaction to these things anymore. And surprisingly, maybe doubts can function the same way for us, okay? Again, as Tim Keller in his book, A Reason for God, he talks about this. Here's what Keller says in A Reason for God. He says, faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who go through life too busy or too indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless either at the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. And so it's no fun to wrestle with doubts. It's no fun to, to, to be dealing with that and struggling with that. But, but the good news is that in the long run, this can actually strengthen our faith. That when a real crisis hits our lives, we're more prepared for it. Our faith is stronger than it used to be because we've struggled, we've wrestled with these doubts along the way. 
But the, the main thing that we do when, when, we, when we diagnose these doubts, the thing that we do with them is we take them to the Lord Jesus. That's how we deal with our doubts. We take them to Jesus. To cry out to him in the midst of our doubts and to ask him for help. Right? That, that's exactly what this father does in Mark chapter 9. He goes to Jesus to get help for his son. Right? He's got faith and doubt mixed in his heart. He believes and doubts at the very same moment. And how does Jesus, I want you to notice, just pause for a minute, how does Jesus treat this father? How does Jesus respond to this doubting father? Does Jesus make this father get his doubt all sorted out before he helps him? No. Does Jesus say, listen, you have some pretty weak faith there, man. You better, you better get that taken care of before I heal your son. No. Why? It's because Jesus loves doubters. Because Jesus loves doubters so much that, that he came and died for doubters, like us. Jesus does not expect you to be perfect before you come to him. Okay? He does not expect you to be perfect when you come to him. He does not expect us to muster up the sort of perfect certainty in our minds before we call on him. He invites us to come to him. He invites us to come and rest in him, in his finished work. So how does Jesus deal with doubters? Let's look back at, at his father, right? The father's doubts are exposed, right? He said, if you can help me, if you can do anything, please have compassion on us. And how, what does Jesus say? Jesus, how does he respond? With a gent he gently responds to him. He gently, gently rebukes him. And he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. Okay, and that's what he says to his father. And that's, this is one of those verses that you might hear quoted by an athlete after the big game, right? All things are possible for the one who believes. And on the surface, it kind of sounds like this inspirational quote, right? If you can just muster up enough faith, if you believe in yourself, you can achieve your goals and dreams. Uh, but that's not what J Jesus is saying here. That's not what Jesus means. This is not a platitude about believing in yourself, about chasing down your dreams, okay? What Jesus is saying here is that all things are possible for the one who believes in Jesus, okay? In other words, Jesus is not talking about the strength or quality of a person's faith. He's talking about the object of our faith. In whom or what are we placing our faith? The strength of your faith is not as important as the object you're placing your faith in, or better yet, in this case, the person you're placing your faith in. I want you to imagine with me, okay, a frozen pond. You, it's, it, you have really have to imagine um, in this warm December, okay? Imagine with me a frozen pond, okay? Imagine walking out on a frozen pond, and you're terrified. You're frightened that at any moment the ice is going to break. I mean, you have some level of faith because you're walking out onto the ice, but you're terrified that you're going to fall through, terrified that you're going to that the ice will break. But little do you know, the ice is extremely thick. Right? There's no way it's going to break for you. There's no way you're going to fall in. And so in that situation, you know, you're completely safe. But, but it's not your meager faith that makes you safe. Right? It's the strength of the object that you're putting your faith in. And that's what Jesus is saying to this Father, that it doesn't matter so much how strong or weak your faith is, it matters that your faith is in the right person. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It is the strength of the Lord Jesus that saves us. And so how does this father respond? With, with some of, in my opinion, some of those beautiful words in the gospel, in the gospels, okay? In verse 24, look how this father responds. Immediately the father child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. I love this thing. It sounds like so contradictory. Um, 
But it really should be the cry of every one of us to the Lord Jesus. I believe, but help my unbelief. And so as Christians, as, as we, we have doubts and faith mixed side by side, mixed in our hearts. And so we cry out to Jesus in the midst of that. Uh, there's a quote in your bulletin by J.C. Ryle. It's a great quote. He, he puts it so well in describing this situation, this experience. He says, Few indeed are to be found among believers in whom trust and doubt, hope and fear do not exist side by side. Nothing is perfect in a child of God so long as he is in the body. His knowledge and love and humility are all more or less defective and mingled with corruption. And as it is with his other graces, so it is with his faith. He believes and yet has about him a remainder of unbelief. What shall we do with our faith? We must use it. Weak, trembling, doubting, feeble as it may be, we must use it. We must not wait until it is great, perfect, and mighty. So no matter how meager or how weak our faith might seem, no matter how many doubts we seem, we feel that we have in our hearts, uh, we, we, we can't wait for the day. We can't wait to call out to Jesus until our faith is strong. We can't wait to look to him until we have perfect certainty. But we look to Jesus in the midst of our weak faith, in the midst of our doubts. The only way for our faith to get stronger is for us to, to use it, to look to Jesus over and over and over again to cry out to him over and over and over again, to ask him for faith, to ask him to help us in our unbelief over and over and over again. You see, faith is not having perfect certainty. Faith is not having all the answers or having everything figured out. Faith is saying, I don't understand everything right now. I don't see the big picture. I'm confused and I'm afraid, but I'm going to trust in Jesus. I'm going to rest in him in the midst of my doubts. I'm going to look to Jesus and say, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's what faith looks like. Actually, the, the passage we read this morning, Habakkuk chapter 3, uh, the very end there, that, that's a beautiful picture of faith, right? Though the fig tree is empty, right? Though, the, though all, these, all these things, terrible things have happened, yet I will look to the Lord, yet I will trust in him. That's what faith looks like. So here's the good news of the gospel, that, that Jesus loves doubters that he is patient and merciful with sinners like us. Our, our doubts make us reluctant to look to Jesus. Our doubts make us slow to cry to him. But hear this, please hear this. Jesus is not a reluctant Savior for you. He is a willing Savior, even for doubters. Now, I, I recognize the problem here, okay? If, if my faith is weak, if I'm plagued by doubts, then how can I go to Jesus with my, with my doubts, right? That's the problem. I, I can't, I'm, I'm having trouble looking to him and crying out to him. How can I go to him with my doubts if I have these doubts? How do I know I can trust him? Uh, that's our question, I think. Uh, another movie that I love a lot, and one of my favorite movies, is, is The Princess Bride. All right, great movie. I'm going to give away some little spoilers here, but you really should have seen it by now. It's been out for like 30 years or something. Uh, okay, so at the beginning of the movie, three, these three guys kidnap uh, this princess, okay? And they're taking her across the sea to this other country. But as, they're, as, the, as they think they've escaped sort of clean, that no one's going to catch them, but there's a boat kind of pursuing them, a man in black that we know to be Wesley, okay? Wesley is pursuing them. And so as they, they, get, to this, they get to this steep sort of cliff called the Cliffs of Insanity. Doesn't it sound like a great place to visit? Uh, the cliffs of insanity, and there's this great rope, and they climb up, 
and the man in black, Wesley, he's pursuing, and, and just as he's getting to the top, the, the people he's pursuing, the three guys who kidnapped the princess, they get there first and they cut the rope. And so Wesley is left kind of clinging to the cliffside, hanging there, you know, maybe 20 or 30 feet from the top. But it's very, it's a very sort of treacherous uh, path. He's, he's unable to, he's going to take him a while to get there. And so there's a guy named Indigo Montoya, who's my favorite character in the movie. Okay, he's like a swordsman, uh, Spaniard. And so Indigo is, is told to wait there for, the, for this man in black, their pursuer, and just to kill him, right? Okay, just wait here for him to get to the top and then kill him. Uh, and so the Indigo is getting kind of impatient. And so he starts talking to the Wesley as Wesley clinging to the cliffside. He says, hey, Wesley, or he doesn't know his name. Hey, sir, you know, do you think you could hurry up a little bit? Could you get up here? He's like, look, I'm doing the best I can. He's like, well, hey, look, I've got some rope. Can I throw you the rope and then bring it up here? Bring it. And he's like, look, I'm afraid I don't trust you. Uh, I, know what's, I know that we're going to fight when I get up there. I know your intentions. I'm afraid I'm not going to trust you to throw me a rope. And so Indigo kind of waits some more. And finally he gets a page. He says, look, is, is, Indigo says to the man in black, is there anything that I can say to you that would make you trust me? And the man in black says, no, there's nothing you can say. And Indigo Montoya, if you know his character, his whole sort of, his whole purpose in the movie is to avenge the death of his father, Domingo Montoya, who was murdered by the six-fingered man. Okay, this is a great movie. If you haven't seen it, you really should. Um, <clears throat> and so, and so, he, Indigo looks at the man in black. The music swells. His face gets serious. He says, I swear to you on the soul of my father, Domingo Montoya, you will reach the top alive. And without hesitation, the man in black says, throw me the rope. And so he climbs up, and you'll have to see the movie for the rest. Uh, but, but, Indigo, he swore by something meaningful. He swore by something significant. And Wesley trusted him. Jesus does that too, okay? Jesus, his promises to us are affirmed by something significant, by something meaningful. But Jesus does not swear by the life of another. Jesus swears by his own life. He gives his own life. As, an, as a guarantee of his promises for us. We know that he'll receive doubters like us because when we were his enemies, he came to us in a little manger 2,000 years ago. When he knew how broken and messed up we are, he, he died for us. He gave himself up for us. He gave everything for doubters like us. When we struggle in trusting him and we struggle with doubts, he is unwavering in his faithfulness to us. Jesus invites us to come to him and rest. He laid down his life for doubters. He gave everything up for people he knew would constantly doubt and question him. He is a safe place for doubters. So let's look to him today and cry out to him, Lord Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer again. Our gracious Father, Lord, we, we confess that we are doubters, that um, sometimes at the first, at the first sign of, of hardship that uh, we doubt your goodness, we doubt your word, we doubt your provision, your care for us. But Lord, we ask that you, in your, in your goodness, that you would help us in our unbelief, that you would remind us of the gospel, remind us of the riches, the treasure we have in the Lord Jesus, remind us of all that he has laid down for us, of all that, of how his promises are guaranteed because he has given himself for us and risen from the grave. Father, we, we know that we are needy people. We need Jesus. 
We ask all these things in his name today.